beyond excited to announce that I have partnered up with Magimix for this season of Crazy Sexy Food. As the inventor of the food processor, Magimix is a family-owned business that has an amazing reputation as makers of quality kitchen appliances and are cherished and adored all around the world by both chefs and home cooks alike. I remember growing up and always seeing my mum's beloved Magimix on her countertop and the utter ease of how she used it. Fast forward to today and my beautiful Magimix cook expert is literally the most used appliance in my kitchen. This latest innovation is both a food processor and multi-cooker in one machine. It's a game changer for me and it's such a dream to use. I think of it as my personal sous chef. I give it all the hard work to get on with so I can focus on more interesting jobs like tasting, flavouring and serving up delicious meals. And don't even get me started on their ice cream machine, the gelato expert. It makes ice cream to rival even the best Italian delicacies. Oh, and if that isn't enough, come September, they're launching a new range of blenders. Fancy getting your hands on one of their products? Then use my code CSFMAGIMIX for a 15% discount at magimix.co.uk. Follow Magimix UK on social, download their brilliant app for hundreds of delicious recipe ideas and see how the amazing Magimix can become your personal sous chef in your kitchen too. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, food experts, chefs, and people who just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and their favorite tastes along the way. Today I'm joined by fellow Iranian, Sabrina Gayal. Sabrina is an Iranian-born British home cook turned chef, food writer, and teacher. She became a household name in 2014 with the release of her debut cookbook, Persiana, which combined the flavours of Iran with the rest of the Middle East and brought the tastes and recipes to homes worldwide. This was followed by several other bestsellers, accumulating in her most recent, Persiana Every Day. A follow-up from its big sister, this book is just as delicious and inspiring, but also focuses on quick, easy and crowd-pleasing recipes. I'm so excited to have another Persian join me to talk about the beauty of our food, but to really dissect the depth of what makes it the most standout cuisine of the Middle East. Sabrina June, salam. Welcome to Crazy Sexy Food. Salam. <laughs> I feel like we are taking over the world. Of course. <laughs> I've actually established that when I do the Persian accent, Western people don't actually recognize that as the Persian accent. Oh, really? Even Omi Jalili, when he speaks with a Persian accent for telly, he uses an Arabic accent. And then you all the are like, what are you doing? This is not how we talk. So it's pointless. What I've just done is utterly pointless, basically. <laughs> well, how are you? It's so lovely to have you join me. I know you. I know it took a little bit of begging and a little bit of you know whatnot to get you here, but I'm I honestly I'm so happy oh that God. you've come on. I'm such a diva, Hannah. It just basically took. Uh, it's not a case of begging. It just basically took me meeting you to feel comfortable because I always think that podcasts are out there in the ether, whereas. Yeah 
when you ramble in a phone interview that ends up in print, they edit most of your Sabrina isms out. <laughs> and um, and believe me, I have like the same thing with my publisher. They edit most of my Sabrina isms out to a certain extent. So well, with podcasts, it's like it's going nowhere. It's going on the internet. So, I promise I'll, uh, I'll, 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 go, I'll go nice on you. I promise. Yeah, just make me sound really intelligent, please. Oh, darling, you already <laughs> are, please. And if you could actually do the whole thing in a Persian accent, I'd be very happy because I no. love a Persian accent. <laughs> I can't, I can't. So I always start my conversations with asking, what did you have for breakfast today? Um. So this rather, I'm just going to, oh. She has the most amazing mug that I think says so much about her. And in big black bold letters, it says the boss. <laughs> There's a, there is a backstory behind this um, is I'm constantly stealing my mother's bigger mug. She likes to have massive coffee in the morning. Okay. So when I first bought this house, I found this mug and I went, fine, this is mine. I'm the boss because um, I obviously my mother works for me. Um, so, but she stole it. So payback. So I'm having an iced coffee because, um, the muesli, I'm trying to be good because I've been stuffing my face all summer. Um, I am back on the muesli, which I actually really like is in the fridge. So I had oh, got it, okay. got the milk ready. And then when it, when I'm done with the call, I, hopefully it will have actually expanded into something that doesn't taste like cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> I know how you feel when you're trying to do that health kick and you're just like is this life <laughs> I mean I do I do like it but I've realized it needs a good hour in milk yeah. before it tastes like food absolutely <laughs> so I know I mentioned um in the intro you have just released your uh your book Persiana Every Day congratulations I've very been very very lucky to receive a copy and I came to your book launch and I just want to say you did the most beautiful touch with the book launch in that you wrote a personal message in every single book and I wasn't expecting it. So when I opened it the next day, I just thought little details like that really kind of get me going. So first of all, thank you. I think it's a Persian thing. I think so too. Uh, it's probably sure the most aesthetically pleasing book I've ever seen in terms of the front cover of it um you haven't seen my lounge but i love green so it's sitting <laughs> pride and place in my sort of open plan kitchen but honestly it's absolutely brilliant and i'm not just saying that because i'm sitting down uh, with you but i wanted to ask what the process was like writing this book compared to the others um it was hell <laughs> uh i will be really honest um i never i never uh, found book writing particularly as enjoyable as the cooking itself because I love cooking I love cooking I love feeding people I'm never um, I never struggle to come up with combinations and things like that but then to get that precision measured and on paper is a whole other ball game it's a totally different discipline one where you can't just be free and creative and chuck stuff into stuff you have to remember quantities because you have you know, thousands of people are going to buy your book and you need, you owe it to them to get mm. the quantities correct and not just wing stuff. So let's just say it's already a little bit more stressful because it, you have to really get your thinking cap on and, you know, stop being a cook for a second. But then I, you know, found myself 
in lockdown, uh, heavily stressed like everybody else, but then also with two kids, you know, I never had, I didn't have children of my own. And then suddenly just before COVID, these children entered my life and I was homeschooling and my husband was at home and my mother was at home and it was just like pandemonium in the house, but I was having to cook set not just three meals but more than that because a kid eats one thing my mother's diabetic my husband is like low maintenance but then we eat something else and and then homeschooling I was like what kind of hell is this and also dealing with like personal like issues myself my own anxiety and things like that because I think loads of people who didn't even have anxiety like me before ha- now have anxiety thanks to COVID um just that claustrophobic environment so I found it really stressful because I was massively late behind with my deadlines which is nuts because you think you're sitting at home doing nothing but actually are you no that's Mm. not the case so it was pretty stressful but what it did teach me is that it's not impossible to create meals and recipes super quickly peeling back on the ingredients because hey we just didn't have that many uh, available and I live in a village in the middle of nowhere with no shops um so it you know on top of the other shortages that we had with certain types of flour and sugar and all of that kind of stuff you know there were other issues so um yeah it was a very different process to the other ones but not one I'm not grateful for having gone through because it really opened my eyes to how fancy pants some of us chefs and writers can be because we are so open to other trendy ingredients like I don't know miso and things like that normal people don't have don't use miso or don't know about miso and um you know can't afford miso especially now more than ever so it's um you know I love miso don't get me wrong but it just made me ask can I peel back on this ingredient that I normally like to use or is this really necessary you know so just keeping it simple and also quick quick that has really been uh, the real sort of theme for the book without cramming the theme down people's throats you know I've just sort of been like hey you know me you know my recipes trust me this is super super easier even easier than all the other recipes that I've written there's something for everyone but don't stress yourself out by trying to do it in five minutes five ingredients whatever and I so. think where you've really succeeded as well is that you know we all I mean as we sort of go back to normal and whatever normal is I don't know what normal is personally but um you know, we never seem to have the time that we want to have on our hands. And I believe that just because you don't have as much time to make a meal doesn't mean that it still can't be tasty. And I think that's where you've kind of shown us that as long as you've got X amount of ingredients, whether it's five or 10 or whatever, you can still make something really delicious. 100%, you know, tomatoes, salt and pepper, uh, you yeah. know, if you've got better on the side, that's a meal. Yeah. If you've got bread, bonus, that still takes it up to four ingredients. You don't even need oil, but if you had oil, yeah. okay, six. Like, you know, it's madness. I think <clears throat> I think people are now, I, and I particularly understand this now, there are kids in my life, I think people struggle for inspiration because they're just so tired. Like, they're so tired. Our brains are so adult and now probably even more so because even if you don't have children you have your life to worry about your income to worry about paying the bills to worry about managing your job managing your relationship managing your mental 
capacity to deal with everyday things you know you don't need to have children I don't have children but I you know do by default but like life is pretty stressful and we we have a lot to juggle as as much as some of us are really sort of lucky to have different things but it's still hard for all of us so um I think that's what that's when your brain capacity is like and you're kind of like foggy because you're just so tired and you really don't have the capacity to even begin to imagine what you want to eat that's where we kind of fall fall um down at that hurdle and that's really the problem because then we think i'll just get a takeaway yeah and and you know it's becoming more and more expensive to get a takeaway it was never the most economical option it was an easier option overall because it would have been just a touch more expensive than buying the ingredients and it's just not that case anymore so i just thought you know what do you do when you've got like squishy tomatoes in the fridge and a head of broccoli that's on its way out right do this what do you you know i've got a lamb neck fillet it's cheap and cheerful plan ahead any kind of bread can make the quickest most banging kebab shawarma super quickly with quite frankly any spices yeah. in your cupboard i have given you a suggestion but if you have curry powder knock yourself out and put it on mm. there just it's gonna be yummy so and i think in i think people need shortcuts and people need options and need reassurance that they don't have to buy extract of gnats wings and you know like all this kind of weird stuff that quite quite frankly still a lot of a lot of uh um chefs still prescribe to people and i'm just like you know a part of me wants to say wake up that isn't a world today it's fine to do it in a couple of recipes but who on earth is going to make food for 40 people in a single recipe like feeds 40 I, 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 i couldn't agree more I want to, before we sort of get back to the present day and sort of your incredible career, I do want to take it back to your childhood because everything sort of starts in this beautiful country called Iran where you are from, I'm sort of half from. And I want you to sort of talk about growing up, but sort of linking it back to the food, what you were eating, who was cooking, because... I understand that you moved to London at the start of the Iranian Revolution, which is a very common story for um, a lot of Iranians at that time. So kind of paint the picture for us. So I came to London uh, in the late 70s, off the back of the revolution. I was, you know, two. And um, my mom was only 22. She was still very young. Her father had just died, um, you know, and his sleep in Iran just before and then we were with my grandmother like three you know two women and a and a quarter you know come come to London in a a flat that my mother had owned with no plan to live there and um you know we left everything behind everything houses any kind of assets everything nothing um but thankfully still a property to come to um and then I just remember my mum having really normal jobs in the 80s, like, you know, working in a gift shop in a hospital and like working as a travel agent, like nothing, you know, just grafting. She was really the breadwinner for the house. And um, so she was out. She wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been her cooking. And also she can't cook, not just to save her life, but she doesn't cook and has never cooked a meal and will fess up and tell you this with not a shade of embarrassment. She's never really? cooked a single meal 
think she once I once taught her how to turn the oven on by FaceTiming her from the bedroom into the kitchen because I I had slipped discs. So I just went, well, I can't cook. I I can't. And she was like, I, I don't know how to work the oven. It's her. That was her house, by the way. And um, <clears throat> she found that immensely stressful because she she grew up in a house where she was always ousted out of the kitchen because it's not terribly uncommon in certain cultures to have a, if mum and dad are working, you have a cook at home. Um, and it's hard to explain that to Western folk because they think, well, you must be loaded. And you're like, mm. well, no, actually, even in Asia and Southeast Asia, it's not uncommon. So she was just booted out the kitchen. And my grandmother really, I mean, she was too busy being glamorous and awesome. Um, never really cooked in Iran for because of that fact either. So um, when we came to England, <clears throat> it was really my grandmother that kind of assumed that role. And um, as my mother was working to produce something, I use that term very loosely, something um, for dinner. And it could be um, because the food hall revolution is really an 80s thing in England, like Marks and Spencer's, for example, only opened their food halls in the 80s. It was a huge deal. So grandmother could produce two fish fingers and two burgers with sliced tomatoes for dinner. <laughs> I, I kid you not, that was definitely a dinner. Quite I, mean, a few I love occasions. fish fingers. So, But like, where's the, like, oh, no carbs? Okay, uh, you just lick this fish finger instead. Thanks, grandma. You wouldn't dare, like, you know, mess. But also she hated, she just hated cooking. She didn't like it. But, you know, the funny thing is I look back and I realize actually she used to cook quite a bit um, because she would allocate a Sunday, I don't know, once every few months maybe, where she would just make like four chorists, which is stews, Persian stews, and she'd freeze them. And okay. and then when she had guests, because she was always entertaining, bizarrely, uh, and when she had guests, she'd just whip a chorist out of the freezer and then make a rice. And I'm like, that's actually more cooking than most people do. She used to make pickles, which I had completely wiped out of my memory. And then I remember this like flashback a few years ago when I was giving an interview to an Irish newspaper. And I was like, yeah, and like, oh my God. And she was like, what? And I was like, my grandmother used to sit me on the bench. I remember these tiny little black seeds in the pickles she used to make pickles and it just hit me and then I went to my mother and I was like grandma used to make pickles she's like yeah I know and I was like oh my god how have I completely wiped that out of my memory and say that my grandmother was just very glam and never did any cooking actually she did and it was the nigella seeds that I remember going in the aubergine pickle and so random for a very glamorous woman like her that I kid you not in my memory she was never in the kitchen but then if I start really prodding mm. that she actually did do quite a bit of cooking but just hated it so that's really interesting that you actually came from a family of women who weren't that keen on, on well, it just on, never did they just didn't do but it grandma's sister grandma's sister was married to an Iraqi had five kids and lived in England since the 50s. She, best cook in the family. And right. maybe because she had five kids yeah. and had moved to England, felt like, well, this has got to be my thing. I've got to feed my kids food that we love. So she was an amazing cook. She was just a couple of years younger than my grandmother. But if truth be told, by the time I sort of kicked, you know, tapped this as a career, she was quite old and didn't really do too much. Uh, but I used to just... 
I did grill her loads and sort of say, how did you do this? And how would you do that just before she passed? But I, it's kind of, I remember stealing meatballs when she would like, you know, batch fry, you know, that, that whole thing. They'd get in there and batch fry meatballs for either a stew or a rice or whatever. And she definitely, by the time she went back to the kitchen, there would always be half the amount of meatballs left because I would just eat, you know, I was only like six or seven, but I was, I'm a, I was a meat fiend. And all you'd hear is, Pinhasag from the kitchen, <laughs> you know, which is like an insult. It's uh, like, you little rascal, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I used to get a lot of trouble, but I loved being at her house because that food was good. <laughs> so tell me, during sort of the formative years, what would you say you were eating a lot more Western food or was, was Iranian food still playing quite a part? So it's a tricky one. Um, we would only really have Iranian food very rarely in the house if we didn't have guests, but then we had guests quite a lot. But also Iranians are uh, social animals, as you know, that I don't think a week could go by where we weren't out four nights a week either. I mean, maybe even more at some auntie's house. Mm -hmm. So especially in the 80s, it really was a, a golden age for entertainment. You know, this is post having left Iran. People are really eager to meet and be together. And so there's a much bigger sense of unity. Also, our grandparents' generations were still alive. And those people entertain like queens, you know. So it's not that now we're all too cool for school and don't want to see each other because we can't be bothered because work is so hard. And like back then, it would be, you know, a big thing. And then you'd be, for the people who couldn't cook, they'd invite you out to dinner. Yeah. So they'd buy everybody out to dinner and, and that would be, um, so yeah, I did eat lots and lots of Persian food because of it. And so where did you learn to cook Persian food? So when my grandma and my her sister, my great aunt, um, became much older and stopped cooking, I was like, this was, this is just my question, was like, who is going to make me ormasabzi? That's... <laughs> Sounds like something that, I say. <laughs> that totally, that was my biggest dilemma. That was honestly the dilemma that fueled everything. And I was like, I'm not done eating this wonderful green stew that has a cult status for Persians, as you know. Um, it's a stew of herbs and kidney beans oh. and slow-braised lamb with, uh, you know, dried limes in it. Um, it is, sorry, various beans, depending on where you come from. I don't want to yes. upset the books and all of this. But it's, it's definitely, I mean, I think we both share the love that that is our favourite. That is definitely course. my favourite. If they, if Joe Malone made a perfume of that, I wear it. Like I've always said, and we even have an expression in in Persian. They say Her head stinks of formasabzi, which means like she's guilty. There's something wrong with that situation. It's like you know, it's so funny because I was like, that's like the coolest saying ever. Um, it is. So I, I that it really boiled down to that factor for me because I just thought well I'm not ready to give up Persian food and nobody's making it anymore and I can't keep relying on another auntie who doesn't make stew as well as the other auntie to drop a stew off to me you know so I imported books from the states uh from a, a US publisher and they cost me back then that was like 20 plus years 20 quid wow. oh, sorry 70 quid oh my 70 gosh. quid plus import cost it because they were small publishers yeah, self-published yeah. so I was like oh my god 
And then I would just go into these shops that we have in uh, Kensington, you know, Ahareza. Yeah. Uh, like, it's just like, Persians just this just like set of shops. We just, we just all sort of come together. We all know, we're all just one big family. <laughs> I, you know, there was, a, there was a time in my life, and I know him and I know he's not, but there was a time in my life and I was like, I, I'm sure this is a front for criminal activity. I mean, I'm not going to say this in a public forum. No, but no, I no, do have some. I do have some stories that we can talk about after the recording. <laughs> Well, you know, he owned he owned three shops and he like adored my grandmother. So, you know, she used to go in there and they so they were kind of like extended sort of friends of the family. But yeah. And so they I used to go in there and I used to uh, because I speak Persian, it's a little bit easier. I go in there and speak with the staff and I'm like, I'll be like, I start with aha which means mister hey sir i'm like ah oh, tell me you know what's the story about like fesenjun or like um stew how do you make it and he's like well you know hanum madam i'm a bachelor so i buy that tin stuff over there and i'm like okay this is not because we we tin it have yeah, you yeah, have you yeah. heard it yeah, yeah. it's crazy so I just, and then women would lean in and go, no, this is how you make it. Ah. And we use this and we use this. And then another woman came in and she was like, no, you don't do that. We always do this. And then they started barneying like full on in the shop. And I was just backed away and legged it. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, so like this Orma Sabzi, it's like a war. Um, and every house does it differently, which made it so much harder mm. because I was like, oh, so there is no one way to do it. And, um, to date it's the recipe i won't publish in a book because it's like i could just see things kicking off that's so um, interesting it's political so political <laughs> i've put it on my website so it's just free content but i've written like this much of like turks use these beans these use these beans these you know turkish persians everybody because yeah. my dad's family are, are, are zeddy and they use like black eyed beans and yeah. then there's families that use brown beans and then there's you know i'm staple kidney beans red kidney beans and then some people use fresh herbs some people use dry yeah. herbs some people use spinach some people swear spinach doesn't go in it you know it's a nightmare and um what i've realized is persians don't class hormisabzi as hormisabzi unless you find persian chives but guess what wheat is in england yeah nobody can find that so um, that's apparently what makes that is it but, fascinating. Um, I love the fact that you haven't actually put it into a book. I think, do you know what? Probably best not to. We, we still <laughs> love you. We still want to keep you around. I, I can't just, bear no, it. I don't want that kind of drama. I attract <laughs> enough drama without being, uh, without treading anything family or political. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah. tell me, have you been ever been back to Iran? Not since 1979, no. no. Um, it, it would be a little bit tricky because we have no home. We have no, we haven't been back. Um, and also, if you haven't been for a very long time, there is the thought that if you don't have family there, you know, you're traveling as a single woman, you know, have you got your father's permission? It's either your father or your husband, right, in in that kind of uh, situation but now I'm married might be a little bit easier and now I have friends that you know I would be like okay that's a really nice person great person to stay with she knows everyone she lives there she yeah. travels back and forth so I do want to go with my husband um, actually really badly because um, you know I hear just great things about oh my god you're crazy it was awesome you know I took my husband he's American or whatever you know it, it was great we had the best time we ate the best food and it's just so cool and cosmopolitan mm. and not really what we're led to think yeah. but 
we all have our sort of nerves and yeah you know, I, I think I'm very much on the same page as you I've never been my mum uh the last time she was there was just after the revolution um and uh hasn't been back since and I, I and I'm desperate to go but again there is that undercurrent of slight apprehension but yeah anyway and also the Iran that our parents tell us yes that doesn't exist anymore exactly because you know my mum went to an American school she used to have pep rallies and bonfires and met my dad in a bowling alley and Love like it. it could be more like the American yeah. sort of dream and it was very free and open and, you know, not really what it represents now um, to a certain extent. So the Iran that they know, they'll be like, oh, my God, it was so cool. We used to do this and that. We used to go to Shemron and like hang by the beach and different in Shomal and yeah. all these different places. And I've, I've heard of all these places. I don't actually know anything about where they are <laughs> located or what they actually are. But so it's a, it's a different yeah, from what is. my mom said. So I want to take it back to present day and I want to sort of talk about the journey that, that got you to where you are now. Um, and, you know, you, you started hosting some incredible supper clubs that really kind of put you on the map in the food world. Um, but kind of summarize what, sort of how you sort of, I guess, took that path. Okay, so I lost my job uh, in 2011. I was working in the city uh, in events and um, it was a crisis and, you know, economic crisis and I, I didn't know what to do. All I knew is I had debts and I needed to earn income and nobody was hiring anymore. And so I made, I just thought, oh, well, I've always kind of been catering on the weekends and teaching the odd person cookery lessons mate you know food is is my love it's what I would have been doing had I not been doing marketing and um, made a joke on Twitter it went viral um, ended up concept ended up in newspapers the next day I was getting bombarded with calls from around the world for this like little supper um, that I had done uh, off the back of Thomas Keller, the French laundry. I joked about doing a French laundrette for £2.50, whereas his was £250. And I just lost my job, so I couldn't go. So that was the joke that he was coming to London. Um, and it just went nuts. And when I did it, I did it for charity because it had so much uptake. Like I would plug the wall into the phone at four in the morning and it would ring for like two months. Just bonkers. Um, so I thought, let's do that. Um, and then we just non-Persian food and then at the end of the dinner a lot of people were like yeah just Sabrina when are you going to do Persian food and I was like really like you you want Persian food um I think for me you know that kind of really important scene in Big Fat Greek Wedding when she takes Moussaka to school <laughs> and the kids go what are you eating and she's like I'm eating Moussaka and they're like Moussaka um that is like my entire childhood of taking solo d'olivier in sandwiches to school and getting mm -hmm. absolutely buried i mean now i'd probably be like oh yeah i'm having persian food it's solo d'olivier people I, would be like what oh. i interviewed actually you mentioned him earlier i interviewed omid jalili on this podcast and he has one of the funniest <laughs> conversation uh funniest anecdotes about when he would take gourmet sabzi to school and he'd go back to his mum and be like you got to stop doing this because the oil is coming out all over the the, um, the school <laughs> bus and the, and the kids are like what is that and it it's one of the struggles of being an iranian kid we've all been there yeah. Yeah, cutlet, shami, yeah. cuckoo, like, you know, all these totally inappropriate items were like surprise lunchbox. Oh, no. <laughs> but also, 
yum. I, I want to eat this, but I don't want. I don't want anyone to see that I'm actually really enjoying this non-Western food. I think it's a different world today because yeah. now anything goes in lunchboxes. But I was very protective on it because I thought to myself, what if they don't like Persian food? I would take it really personally if they were like, this is crap, you know? And I, I just didn't want, I didn't want that. I didn't want to bring that up, but I was wrong. Like, boy, was I so wrong. Um and it didn't start as amazing supper clubs. It started as, hi, I've got 12 places. Does anyone want to come? Oh, are you in Ken- Kennington? No, Kensington. Uh, are you going to be doing any in Kennington? No, because I live like in Kensington. So I couldn't even get people to have buns on seats at the beginning. There was a, there was no, oh, she was an overnight success. It was none of that BS. I just have to tell you, it was truckloads of hard graft, loads of marketing and to promote the the suppers loads of catering i did seven day, almost seven days a week of catering wow. um like little jobs for next to no money that i look back and think geez why but why all those people now buy my books mm-hmm. so all those people cooked dinner parties and said do you remember when that girl came and catered for us yeah this is these are her books now so maybe it was like foundation level pr like ground basing so um it was a lot of lot of hard graft, a lot of tears, a lot of struggling, a lot of, you know, not making ends meet that um, culminated in 2013, somebody coming in summer to my supper club and saying, yeah, we want to give you a book deal. I was like, okay, great. Thank you so much. Anyway, hope you enjoyed dinner. Bye. You know, because I just thought people are lovely, but when they're, you know, slightly tiddly, what do they know? Yeah. And then they, the next day there was a book deal um with my agent which I turned down because I saw the words baba ganoush and I was like I, I don't want to write a baba ganoush recipe I don't want to it's already out there I don't want to do what's already out there um and then they said no we'll do whatever you want to do that's fine and they were amazing and they still are amazing because they're still my publisher and they are literally without a shred of bias they are the best so I, do you know what these stories especially when it's like the real sort of hard graft you know listen overnight success is great but i i think to really have that real story and that real love and determination and pride in what you do that it, it's the years of as you just said seven days a week catering doing the things for little to no money but you do it because you love what you do and, yeah. and you need to do it you ha- exactly well exactly you ha- there is no choice no and i think i think the thing is it's really funny once upon a time i used to go around trying to correct people and they go it just came it was just like huge it was overnight success i used to go ah, actually it really wasn't overnight success it was years of hard graft and let's not forget i've actually been working in hospitality since i was 18 years old i've worked every role in a hotel every role in uh, catering you name it i've done it all i still table service at my supper clubs because my job is not to stand there looking precious as the star of the show it's to feed people i still know how to carry three plates on each hand and get them to a table because that's what my job is to feed people i'm still sarah madam i'm very classically trained i'm hilton trained so you know i'm very classically trained when it comes to the disciplines of hospitality because I think sometimes people get very careful and forget that what's actually important is the one thing we Persians do rather well hosting yes it's not just about the cooking it's about hosting you can have great food and terrible service in some restaurants um, and vice versa great service and not so good food so it's about finding a balance of the two but 
I don't actually believe that overnight successes are a thing. I think if you ask some of the biggest successful people in the world, they'll tell you a backstory that stretches 20 years. Nobody just walks into something um, and it happens overnight. And if it does, it's like a firework. It bursts and then it goes. Couldn't agree more. I've always believed that. I know we have been just having a fabulous conversation about Persian food, but for people that uh, may not know as much as we do i really just want to break it down i want you to sort of explain to us sort of i guess the fundamental flavors spices of of iranian food but also what makes it different to the other middle eastern cuisines so i think people are usually shocked when i have to say what i'm about to say is that persian food is incredibly different to the rest of the middle eastern cuisine Um, Middle Eastern cuisine, by definition, that we know in the Western world or are most familiar with tends to be cuisine that focuses around sort of Lebanese and like Arab Middle East, but not even like Emirati Arab or, you know, other kind of Arab states. Um, It's kind of like the shawamas, the hummus, the tabbouleh, that kind of stuff, which is delicious. But there is also another large influence that is influenced by the Ottomans, which are the modern day Turks. And that that kind of influence occupied even in uh, Iraq until the 1920s. However, Persian influence wasn't Persian cookery wasn't touched by either of those cultures. So we have this totally separate um, culture. and We don't. I know it's no surprise to you. We don't use spice. Mm. We don't like spice. We harvest 92% of the world's top best quality saffron. It's been proven. I'll argue with any Spaniard, uh, Kashmiri (laughs) or Italian about this um, because it's been scientifically proven so I can say it. Um, But (laughs) apart from that, uh, we only really use saffron and a pinch of cumin seeds in a rice dish. That's kind of about it. We don't even like garlic that much. Mm. The only times we Iranians do eat garlic is if you live in the region that grows the garlic, Milan province, which is where, you know, one of our fa- famous dishes, um, Mirza Qasimi, which is a smoked aubergine puree with loads of mellow cooked garlic and tomato come, you know, that's the region that it comes from. Yes, and that has mainstreamed in a way that for Italians, whatever is the ragu or the bolognese equivalent, everybody has a ragu. So it that that is popular, but Essentially, in Iran, you live by the sea, you eat fish, you live in the mountains, you eat what's there. But Persians are really quite simple in their preferences. They don't like um, quite, you know, quite similar to most traditional cultures. They don't like rare meat. They like everything either slow cooked or cooked really well done, but not well done and chewy and rock hard. You know, we are artists when it comes to grilling meat. The expert, the word kebab is a Persian word for roasting. Um, and kebabs are done on swords because it was Persian Empire that would always, you know, stop, kill something locally and then roast it on their swords. So that whole art of roasting things on fire is born out of this eastern region and not just exclusive to Persians obviously but there's a way to cook meat where you cook it all the way through so it's not buddy but it's so tender and moist and juicy I haven't quite figured that one out because it takes years to do but apart from that flavor profiles are aromatics is yes. how I usually sum up Persian our rice has a perfume unlike no other in the east and we're famous for it because we don't cook by water absorption 
we parboil and then we steam our rice to bring out its perfume and have singular grains. And then our other profiles are tomato, herbs, citrus. We're absolutely obsessed with sour things. And even though Persians say, I don't like sweet and sour, it's a very not nice combination. Uh, we have more combinations of combining meat with fruit than any other culture on God's earth. So much so that we have uh, an established in our trade routes and documentation that we have exported apricots and pomegranates to China. Um, our nuts and dried fruits have you know, reached North Africa, which then made it into the dish that they call tagines. You know, mm. we, we are not responsible for tagines, but those ingredients heading there is what created that. And also, obviously, the Mughal Empire in India drew heavy influences from Persian cuisine and culture, from language to poetry to astronomy to cookery, because they created the biryani. And even though they say it's Persian, it isn't actually Persian because what we call a biryani or beryuni is a different thing. But the rice method is Persian and the ingredients in an authentic biryani, which doesn't have spice other than saffron and maybe a few aromatic herbs, there's no chili in it. It just has dried fruits, some kind of nuts, potatoes and meat and caramelized onions and a load of saffron. So um, we are quite a strong and established culture but quite little known how simple we do like to eat. We only have one salad, which is crazy because people are like, can you make, can you give me a selection of Persian salads? I'm like, well, we really only have one. Uh, tomatoes, cucumber and onion. And I said, and we do two things or three things with aubergines. Quite simple what we do. And we don't have a ton of cheeses. We have one and it's called cheese. <laughs> like it's, um, do you know what you're actually listening to you talk about it you're absolutely right it is actually yeah. quite simple yeah when you, like when it you, if you made a list compared to other cuisines especially like the ingredients list there's not Do you know what i think it is i think it's because our culture remains quite undiluted because yeah. the Persian empire was quite strong mm. even though we've welcomed a lot of cultures into iran we ha it hasn't sort of it hasn't been occupied in the way that let's say iraq was until the 1920s yeah. with the ottomans hasn't been influenced by the ottomans or the arabs um however there were always little bits and pieces like for example um we have salad olivier that's a russian dish mm -hmm. uh that we have then I, I won't say improved upon because I don't want to risk the wrath. I actually had a really, I had a really difficult conversation with someone a few days ago about this, and it was again no, starting to get very political. So I decided to exit the conversation. Yeah, you just got to walk. It's I'll just say we have it. our version. We have our version, and it's to yeah. be honest, it's nigh on, you know, almost spot yeah. on, and even some areas of Russia they do put chicken in it but I'd like to think the chicken is probably a little bit more us yeah. um, we have piroshki which is obviously sort of Russian you know eastern influences we have borscht even though it's not known as a Persian dish it's there you know um, because we're cl close proximity to Russia so and there are, then there are other influences because we have Azeris, Azerbaijani, Turkish, Persians. Um, so they have a lot of their, their food is completely different to ours. But obviously there's a lot of crossover. But I think that's probably why. But I think it's a plus point for us because 
when people are like, oh, I've never had Middle Eastern food because there are still lots of people that haven't. And I'm like, oh, they're like, is it spicy? And I'm like, no, actually, it's a really great place to start because you can sort of, you know, dip your toe in that water. And then when you feel a bit like, okay, I like the kebabs, I like this, and I like the stews, then you can sort of traverse into Turkey, Arab Middle East, and those other regions that have slightly different food. But I just, I like Persian food for its simplicity which sometimes people call elegance. We'll take that. Yeah, we'll take um, it all, it's fine. <laughs> there is one dish that we absolutely have to talk about, because if we are going to talk about politics in food, I think for me, it boils down to the most beautiful part of any Persian feast, which is tariq. Now, tariq is the the, the rice dish with the, the crispy rice on top that I don't know how everyone makes it, but my mum makes it in the rice cooker talk about it tell me what's your favorite version um and do you have arguments around your dinner table like we do in my family uh yes is the big <laughs> fat factor of that uh <laughs> always has been but seeing as i'm the only person that cooks it they know if i don't get a slice there'll be trouble yeah and it'll be the last paddy that ever makes it to the table um <laughs> So tah dig, tah means base and dig means pan for people who didn't know. I was actually having this conversation with my stepkids last night over the tah dig. Um, <laughs> because we now have tah dig with everything, tah dig with curry, tah dig yeah. with Thai food, tah dig yeah. with like, it doesn't matter, like jollof rice tah dig, yeah. it doesn't matter. Everything gets turned into yeah. crispy rice because who doesn't like that? Well, exactly. Um, so yeah, it is. Actually, uh, you know, I was looking at your Instagram the other day and basically invited myself over to your mother's cooking one day. I, by <laughs> your the mother's... way, I've told her she's really nervous. No, my God, <laughs> tell her not to be nervous and I'll send her a voice note that would be like, you know, like in t- totally in Persian, that'd be like, like, salam khanum, please don't worry. I really can't cook. Don't worry. It's it's all a no, lie. No, I mean, she, you'll be really happy. You're going to be in great safe hands, but she's like, oh, for oh. God's sake, Hannah. <laughs> I just... Just tell her I will bring Shirini. It's fine. Perfect. Don't worry. Perfect. <laughs> um, tadig, your yeah, that potato tadig is actually my favorite. Yes. I find it to be for me the trickiest because yeah. I haven't you know, every time I change a pan or uh, change a cooker or cook on someone else, it's so different. And I just think rice tadig, yep, great. You know, I can just do that all the time. Whereas potato tadig, if I'm a little pressed for time or things go a little bit longer, it's not, you know, it's not always plain sailing yeah. for me. So I feel like it took me 20 years to master proper tadig <laughs> like, and all the tips and tricks, that, you know, they have evolved since I wrote my first book because people use gas. That's a bit of the enemy of tadig. And, you know, people go, oh, I'm using my nice Le Creuset pan. I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> like it will burn. Also, um, how are you going to flip that around in a Le Creuset? Honestly, I once did sat in a kitchen with James Martin and he did that and he was like, this is so heavy. And I'm like, I know. Like, wow. what it was, I was just like, this is such a bad choice. <laughs> That's how I ended up with a bad back. Not with, you know, the crusade, but like flipping rice over yeah. in large quantities is heavy enough, yeah. you know. You know two people, honest, five one, kilos of rice. There's one form of tadik that I'm not a massive fan of is when people put bread on the bottom. Uh, I see what you mean. I do still like it. And my aunt makes a total gangster version of it. Okay. And hers is really nice. But sometimes I find it going, I find myself eating and going, yeah, nope. Yeah. I don't know. I, know just, what you- 
I guess it's just I wasn't raised with having the having the bread. We I've always no, my mum has always done either. the um, potatoes and and that's what I it's know. It's either been plain or it's been potato. Um, and I love uh, like the lubia polotadik mm. and the broad bean bahari polotadik. But have you ever had? I'm going to throw a curveball into here. Cornflake tadik. What? I know it's a thing. Okay. I want to explain how, how. Okay, I have never made it myself because I just think, ah, oh, how I can't do that. But I was, was uh, my uh, aunt passed away like a decade ago, and I flew to Germany with my for my to see my dad because it's my dad's sister, um, and so he'd flown in from states, and like all the other aunties and his brothers and sisters had flown in from different countries. So I'd like hadn't met somebody of some of them since I was like a kid or whatever. And then they were like, they were in my aunt's house. So they don't really know what was there and what wasn't. And they were like, okay, yo, oh God, you know, okay, I'm going to make cornflake tadik. And I was like, say what? <laughs> like cornflake tadik. And I was thinking, wow, haven't met these people for a long time. Some of them I never met. These people are loony bins. Like I honestly just thought they were nuts. And I thought it's really disrespectful to, you know, critique it or ask questions. I'm not saying anything. It was amazing. And then through my career, I started meeting more Ozaris. And they're like, yes, we do it. Yeah, cornflake tadik. I'm like, what? So hold on. So you're are you crushing the cornflakes or you're keeping them whole on the bottom? Who knows? Oh but my I god! Okay, I have I to did, investigate this. I later. bet you, if I did that video on on Instagram, it would probably go viral. But I wouldn't because just people would go mental. Um, I don't know. I I assume that you just put a little bit of oil and water or ghee and water in the bottom of the pan, and then you put the cornflakes, and the cornflakes quickly turns to mush. It gives you like a carb base that's like you know, if it cornflake chicken and all of these things were chips potato chips it makes my brain is like oh i gotta try oh all God. of these you know after this i'm gonna have to search for this i'm just gonna have to i just need to visually <laughs> understand what it looks like i, I just, just look it's like a lot. normal it looks like normal tadik and it's super crispy but you just know that there's not rice on the surface wow. you know that it's something else, but... mind blown yeah. absolutely oh. mind blown okay <laughs> Sort of rounding up sort of the conversation around Iranian food, as, as I also said in the intro, you know, Persiana really put you on the map in 2014. And I guess, you know, I've already sort of spoken to you about what inspires you and sort of, you know, the process of you writing book. But why did you particularly want to write this book? Um, and when you were writing it, sort of what was the concept? Because... As as I've sort of explained, it isn't just Iranian food. It's a bit of everything. Um, and yeah, I guess kind of just sort of explain that time. I don't tend to do things with rhyme or reason or method, which is just a bit awkward when you're trying to share to help someone else. Um, so I was cooking uh, at supper clubs and I was doing Persian supper clubs. But then I realized that if I was doing Persian and Middle Eastern supper clubs. So some of them would be really authentically Persian, but I just kind of mixed the two because for a lot of people, didn't know the difference. And I would never say, oh yeah, this this tagine is Persian. Don't get me wrong. I would always keep it representing the authentic thing of what it was, but they just work so well together sometimes when you have a little yogurt. You know, North African dishes don't have the yogurt and cucumber, but they have like just yogurt on the side. And so I started mixing it up. And then, so... 
And then also for catering, I needed much bigger menus than I had at supper clubs. So supper clubs were 10 dishes, but like at catering, I needed like, I needed menus of people to go, yeah, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that. Does that work together? Yeah, that should be balanced. That's fine. You're missing a salad, something like that. Um, And so by the time my publisher came to me, they had sent an email to my agent that was like, boom. And I was like, I recognize these. Oh my God, those are my recipes. And, And I know because I'd made most of them up like barberry chicken and fennel stew with saffron and like that's not a persian recipe we don't have fennel and we don't combine that together but it's kind of inspired by you know zerish or barberry rice with chicken and saffron so it was kind of like a culmination of that sort of thing and i was like oh my god i said to my agent they've literally gone through all my social media pulled out pictures and uh, labels because i used to t- tweet a lot and instagram uh, the food that i was cooking ma- mostly tweet at that point and they've just picked out all the things that i've done and all the various menus that i've clearly done in supper clubs I was quite impressed because they've done quite a bit of research and they just said we just want all of these and and the i guess from one hand the mistake of a title like persiana is like people didn't really get the, the, the joke the joke is i am persiana because at the time my partner was italian and persiana is how you um is a lady that's it that's persian persiana sono persiana um so uh, i am yeah it also means blinds and shutters which is a really (laughs) awkward sideline in italian you're like yeah persiana come le finestre like the window and you're like no like you know paese country persian ah you know so it's quite interesting tell me i must ask you what is if you had to choose one persian dish that is like your absolute favorite what is it love for misabzi and if i had to if they said there's one stew for life what is it and i'm like it's for misabzi so much so that when i make it i make it probably about four times the quantity of what i actually need i will make myself sick on it for three days and then I'll freeze anything that's left because I love warmer stuff. I don't know what it is about it. I'll be honest. Oh, I just, I, I just think it's the most, when I put it in, into my mouth, it's like, I don't know. It just, I get very I emotional. Do you? I don't I know what it is. It's so beautiful. Something about its herbiness and then the, that oil that, um, Omid was talking about it's not in a horrible greasy no, way no no it's green it's scented it's perfumed I can't explain it it's also, like a I I've definitely got my mother's jeans on this we are obsessed with Persian dried limes yeah. and that's that's yeah. really sort of part of the dish and I just Hugely. yeah that Hugely. flavor is yeah. sort of catnip to me You'll you'll be uh, very pleased to know. So is Nigella. She's obsessed with them. I always oh, think the woman you. had great taste, and oh, I just I know she came around <laughs> for a supper club once just before I packed them in. She was like, "Hey, darling, I have to come," and I was like, "I'm fully booked. I can't. I can't squeeze you in." And I go, "Like you'd have to sit in the kitchen floor. I don't know where to sit." But thankfully, somebody else had to bail out, oh. so put her in. And then everybody was like, so do we eat these dried limes? And she was, just went, boom. And she was like, yeah, I love them. I got stuck in. And then everybody was like, oh, get me a dried lime. So I was like, amazing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. When you do find yourself out and about, where are some of your favorite restaurants? Um, so I live in Yorkshire. And um, I would probably name check some places in Yorkshire and also um, in um, 
in London. So in London, I like very simple things. I mean, they're not simple by any means, but they're not sort of pretentious places. I love Kiln in Soho for amazing Thai food, but it's Thai food. It's not like green, red oh, curry, not no. that kind of vibe. It's proper Thai food. Um, and it blows then, your head off, but I love it. Yeah, some dishes, not not yeah. all. Um, and there's Paradise Soho for Sri Lankan. There's Kish. K-I-S-H for Persian food, if I get a lot So is of that your favourite Persian in London? Yeah, it's really, it's really weird because you, you can have a family. Are you talking about the one in Maid of Ale? Hmm? Inter- yeah, I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the best um, now. Uh, I wasn't, there was always like half as as well as number two for me. Yeah. Um, but the rest, I don't rate them anymore because they've changed so much yeah. over the years. Um, and also it's very family-based where you mm. like and where you eat. So, um where else? Where else do I tend to go? Colony Grill Room, I tend to go a lot uh, when I used to live in London. Um, Brat, Shoreditch, love that place. Um, so many. But then up in Yorkshire, I love Mannion and Co. Um, I love, where else? I love Betty's. Who doesn't love Betty's? Betty's is this like institution of over 150 years of um, cakes and English. Betty's is stuff. not in Harrogate, is it? It's all, it's in quite a few places. It's a okay. real sort of institution and there is yeah. one in Harrow. Yeah, you would have known it because there would have been a queue all the way around the block. Yeah, it. no, I, my, my, um, my godfather used to go to Harrogate a lot and he always used to talk about Betty's. Is it like a tea room yeah. or like a, There's a yeah. tea room, but now they, yeah. they kind of do everything. But Betty's yeah. is absolutely um, lovely. And then my favourite place for a good old proper roast with gravy and not jus, my requirement, mm. is the Dornay Arms, um, okay. which is amazing. Um yeah, lots of places. Just love food. You know, pull up to a street, you know, on the side if somebody was selling fish and chips like that would be my heaven. I, I'm, Absolutely. I'm not. Right. We've come towards the end of this conversation and I always finish with my famous quick fire questions. Are you oh, ready? God. No. <laughs> <laughs> what is the craziest food you've ever eaten? Oh, God. Um... So there are some weird meats, but like I'm, uh, when I used to cater, I used to make up some pretty insane stuff, like just from being too exhausted to cook. I do something I developed called the crisp canapé. So I used to wrap what-sits in jamon and like um, truffle truffle crisps, you know, Torres, the Spanish ones. I used to wrap wrap them in mortadella. Um, I also used to wrap Haribo um, tang fastics in mortadella less popular um okay. but yeah i'm, I'm, I'm trying bit, to i'm trying to picture that one i'm a I'll bit take your word for it it's not dreadful it's not dreadful i've always eaten like a pregnant woman okay. how having never been pregnant i've always eaten mad stuff together and i don't care what people think i think okay. you need to eat what feels good for you no matter what absolutely I'm definitely going to try these, the, the what's-its in um, Hamon sounds fabulous, yeah. right up the street. <laughs> it really works. I love it. What has been your most memorable meal? I like to think, uh, actually, re- in recent years, I would probably say, um, I just came back from the south of France, and there is a place there that I've loved for well over two decades. Um, it's a, a place in a tiny little village called Saint-Paul-de-Vence. It's it just outside of Nice. It's a little place called Colombe d'Or. It's a hotel, very small, um, very niche, with a 
incredible history and they're just a really simple food like it's not mind-blowing food but you're just like on the top at the hills with a view looking down into a valley and it's like outrageously hot but you know they serve just wonderful things like prawn cocktails and salads and you know crudite baskets and ah. Oh, and it's heaven. Anytime I go there, that kind of setting in an unpretentious, even though it is quite high end, but it's yeah. just not, they're not pretentious about mm. it. Um, I love that. That kind of stuff makes me think, oh, this is why I work. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. This is, you know, I quite happily work a year to have. Absolutely. You know, yeah, that, that I agree. It's so beautiful up there. It's so beautiful. It's stunning, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Right. My favourite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. What is your favourite flavour of crisps and why? Orcus cheese and onion. <gasps> Just like my mother. Yeah. You, this I, must I be have a Romanian thing. I don't know what it is. I don't Salt and vinegar doesn't cut it for me. I can't, I can't sit next to somebody who's eating salt and vinegar or even worse, pickled onion flavoured crisps. No, Sabrina, don't say that. They're my favourite. Oh, no, I mean, knock yourself out, but like... <laughs> I can't sit next to you because I'm like, that is awful. It just stinks. Um, what is it about the cheese and crisps. onion? I, I don't know what it is. It's just, I think I probably got that from my mother. And I remember um, in the 80s, Walker's wasn't really the biggest brand. The biggest brand was Golden Wonder. And they oh, came cheese and Golden onion. Wonder. Cheese and onion came in green packaging yes. and turquoise was salt and vinegar and navy blue was ready salted and i i found a packet of golden wonder because i didn't know they still make it and i was like this is horrible this is i'm God, so I used know to they, i thought now. they i thought they disappeared years ago oh, they apparently still make them but walkers wow. is the one but then i have like a top five of crisps and a lot of people come to my book events and go talk about my crisp top five which is a bit bizarre Mad. i mean Listen, I'm not. I, I, I'm try, I, I try not to judge people on this answer. The, the point is, is that most people who listen to this podcast will know that had you have answered by saying that you like prawn cocktail, we would have abruptly ended this conversation. <laughs> no. I have a huge issue. And weirdly, Omid said that prawn cocktail was his favourite. And um, I think I might have offended him. I don't know. But I was so <laughs> flabbergasted um, because I don't believe that it's a flavour. It just doesn't, it's doesn't a nothing thing. It like prawn cocktail. No, exactly. I mean, it's just, just be way too fishy. No, but yeah. my youngest stepson adores prawn cocktail. A lot of people do. I just don't get it. Yips I'm okay with, but not those. Not oh, yeah. See, that's the only, that's as far as I'll go. Just That's because I like the consistency of them. Yeah, they just melt on your tongue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, next question. What food sums up happiness for you? I think a kebab. <laughs> but not like a kebab that you get when you're pissed and like can't <laughs> see straight. Not that, I mean, I don't, no. I, that's, not, that's not something I get to be fair. But when it's really well made, it doesn't matter whether it's Greek, Turkish, Persian, Arab. It doesn't matter. Shawarma, sulaki, mm, whatever. Mm. With bread oh. and like thin bread and like onions and just oh, you know. <laughs> that is know, it is it's thinking. kind of everything all in one. You know, yeah. it's not pretentious. It doesn't need nine hundred other things. It's yeah. just all in one. Perfect. And final question: Live to eat or eat to live? <sighs> Of course it's live to eat with me. Yeah, there's okay, no, I'd be lying. <laughs> but you know what? I, I don't know. I just always think that eat to live people. There are people in my life that have come up to me and said, oh, I'm not really a food person. Why don't we just go out for drinks? And I'm like, I don't want to go out anywhere with you anymore. 
Like, you know, how can you not be a food person? Oh, yeah. I just eat something to get by. What? Like, I cannot understand. And I don't think I know any of those people anymore because even the wine experts in my life love food. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, yeah. But I'd like to think that we probably are way more indulgent. But, you know, if I, I'm not here, I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. So as long as the cholesterol keeps in check, I'm all good with eating uh, as much as I like. Absolutely. Sabrina, thank you so much for entrusting me with your words. I think you've come across beautifully, so don't worry about anything. <laughs> I won't edit you into any other type of person. And thank you also for just really dissecting um, the fundamentals of what I think really is just the most beautiful cuisine. And if people don't know much about it, we obviously both urge you to go and try it because... It's quite an invite to Hannah's mum's house. Yeah, That's go to my mum's house. Sabrina's coming, so everyone, everyone else is invited. It's going to be a ticketed <laughs> event on Ticketmaster. Don't worry. Uh, wow, she is so not going to be talking to me by the end of this. <laughs> She'll be cooking for seven days. Honestly, thank you so much. This was such a joy, and um, I, I can't wait to see you again soon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hot office. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time, bye.